Chapter Six of the Friendship of Anne, a story by Ellen Douglas Deland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Anne Talbot had also received several letters that morning, and there was one among them which caused her to feel extremely angry, while at the same time it filled her with curiosity. It was an anonymous letter which perhaps is of all things the most cowardly and unpardonable. If Anne had a little more experience of the world, she would have known that a person who has not the courage to sign his or her name to a letter is a very worthless individual and not of sufficient importance to be listened to. But as she had never in her life before received such a communication and had never heard the subject discussed it was not to be expected that she should know that such things should be left unnoticed it was written in a style that looked something like printing on a sheet of ruled paper and its contents were as follows there is a member of the kqc who ought to be watched carefully. We do not think she is a proper person to belong. Watch. This note had neither the customary beginning nor any signature. Anne examined the postmark and found that it had come from New York. Of course it had to be sent to her because she was the president, and she decided that it was her duty to show it to Ruth Carter the secretary and if she thought best they would give it to the other members of the secret committee to read no one but the girls who were of this committee knew who belonged to it the chief object of the kqc appeared to be to make everything as mysterious as possible ruth carter however advised that nothing should be said about it at present just keep the letter and wait and see what else happens, she said. Anonymous letters are perfectly hateful, and it ought to be burned right up. But perhaps it would be wiser to wait a little while before you do that. The committee might object if we told them afterwards that you had received the letter and hadn't shown it to them. Who can have written it? said Anne reading it for the tenth time, and whom do you suppose they mean? I can't imagine who wrote it, but I shouldn't wonder if they meant Bertha Macy. Somehow I haven't liked the girl from the first. There is something about her I don't trust. Very likely some of the girls have felt the same way and may have really seen something which makes them believe she ought to be dropped. If they had only left it to be done in the proper way, it would have been better. Perhaps a new girl has written it, and she doesn't know what the regular way is. Sometimes I have awful doubts about the club, Ruth, but not often. Most of the time I think it is just too perfect and I am perfectly thankful the girls who founded it had such a brilliant inspiration. The only new girl who could have written it about Bertha Macy is Sydney Stewart. 
she doesn't like her very much but the other new ones are quite intimate with her but it doesn't seem like sydney to write this i shouldn't think so either but you never can tell we just have to wait and see what else happens there will be another before long you'll see the afternoon seemed unusually long to sydney the time fairly dragged the weather was beautiful and the girls were out of doors every moment that it was possible miss wickersham had consented to have a tennis court on the level space at the side of the house the side farthest from braithwaite hall but as only four could play and as sydney had no racket she was seldom included in that there were not as many sports for girls in those days as there are now hockey had not been thought of for them and as most of the wickersham girls were from the city they had never attempted basketball or cricket so it was usual to walk about and talk and therefore not have nearly as wholesome or as good a time as girls do nowadays this afternoon sydney's special friends were playing tennis and she was too shy to ask anyone else to go with her she went off for a solitary walk this in itself was pleasant enough for she enjoyed merely being out in the soft indian summer air but something occurred as she was returning that disturbed her although she told herself that she was foolish to mind or even notice such a trifle she was coming from the woods which stretched up over the hill behind the schoolhouse the path was quite narrow with a thick growth of trees on one side and the high stone wall which surrounded the braithwaite place on the other just in the narrowest part she met bertha macy and julia clark they were walking arm in arm and were deep in a conversation which appeared to be of a most interesting nature when they saw sydney they stopped talking and drew to one side to let her pass they held their skirts tightly about them precisely as though they did not wish her to touch them sydney made some laughing remark but neither of them took the slightest notice of her except for the fact that they had drawn aside for her to pass it was though they did not see her sydney's face grew scarlet she hurried on without a word she went immediately to her room to lay aside her hat and coat she decided to take a book and read until the study hour but she sat with the book unopened in her hand and before she realized what she was doing she was crying it is perfectly silly of me to mind she said to herself i won't mind but bertha is getting more and more disagreeable i don't know what to do about it it is so hard to room with a girl who dislikes you i know i don't like her either and perhaps that is the reason i suppose margaret would say it to me i suppose margaret would say it was dear old margaret i wish i could see her and talk it over with her and get to thinking right i do hope i can go home for the christmas holidays 
It would be dreadful to stay here and have everybody go, and Bertha would look down on me so. She looks down on me now. That is what it is. She thinks I am a nobody. Well, I am poor, but that isn't such a dreadful thing as being ill-bred. She is that. There, I am not going to think any more about her. I don't care if she is afraid of touching me when we meet. She dried her eyes and smoothed her hair, looking in the glass with a closer scrutiny than usual, in order that all traces of her recent tears might be hidden. And when Bertha Macy came upstairs, shortly before the study hour, she found her roommate sitting by the window quietly reading. Bertha bustled about, making a great amount of noise, but saying nothing. She opened and shut all her bureau drawers, one after the other. She banged her trunk lid, upset a chair, and finally in her zeal she broke a tumbler. At the crash of the glass, Sydney looked up. "'Oh, that is too bad!' she exclaimed, and leaving her seat, she began to help Bertha to gather up the pieces of glass. "'How did you happen to do it?' she spoke very pleasantly. "'You need not trouble yourself,' said Bertha coldly. "'I can find the glass perfectly well alone.' "'Oh, all right,' said Sydney, and presently she left the room. In the hall below, she met Anne Talbot. Anne, she said, in a rather choked voice, I don't know what I am going to do. What about? Do you mean tonight? Oh, it will be easy enough, Sydney. Don't, don't show the white feather. If you knew how much depended, oh, not about tonight. I am glad to do that. No, it is something very different. It is about Bertha Macy. Anne looked troubled. Please, don't say anything about her now, Sydney. I, I would rather you didn't. Sydney drew back. She felt deeply hurt. She had counted on Anne's friendship and support, and evidently Anne did not wish to give it to her. Oh, all right, she said to her just as she had said it to Bertha a few minutes before, and then she left her and continued on her way downstairs. There, I have hurt Sydney's feelings awfully, exclaimed Anne to Dolly Fearing, whom she found in their room. She was just going to say something about Bertha, and I shut her up. I couldn't let her especially as I am quite sure she is the one who wrote the anonymous letter. She had told Dolly about the letter, for she always told her everything. I don't know why you are so sure Sydney wrote that letter, said Dolly. You always feel so certain about things, Anne, but you do sometimes come out wrong. Well, I ought to have answered Sydney differently. I know that but I was in a tearing hurry, and I thought at first that she was going to be a coward about the KQC, and then I thought she was going to break another rule, and I just had to stop her, and of course she doesn't understand. I will say something nice to her the first chance I get. 
and so a little later Anne smiled and gracious slipped a little package into Sydney's hand. Marshmallows, she whispered, put them in your pocket and eat them tonight when you go over the wall, and you will walk with me a week from Friday, Sid. Put it down so as not to forget it. As if Sydney could possibly forget it. The very thought of it made her quite happy again. It required so little to make her happy or miserable. At last the day was over. Supper had been eaten and the thrilling moment had come for the expedition to Braithwaite Hall. Some of the girls were gathered in the library where games were played every evening. Backgammon, chess, halma, or writing games. Miss Wickersham had retired to her room and Miss Jeanie was in charge. Miss Abby and one or two of the other teachers had gone to an entertainment that was being given in the town hall, and some of the girls were with them. It was not strange, therefore, that Sydney's absence from the games was unnoticed, as well as that of two other girls, Anne Talbot and Marion Shaw. Miss Jeanie, if she thought of them at all, would naturally suppose that they were of the party who had gone into Knightsbridge. The night had been carefully chosen by the committee for this very reason. Very quietly a slender figure stole down the stairs and out by the back door. It was Sydney. She wore a grey ulster with a hood which was drawn over her head. She closed the door without a sound and found herself alone in the dark garden. It was dark now, but a little later the moon would be up. She crept along the path by the wall. Down near the corner there was a place where the stones were quite uneven, which she had noticed when she passed there in the afternoon. It seemed the best place to climb over, for they would afford a surer foothold. She did not see two figures who followed her down the path, drawing more deeply into the shadow when she paused to look about and find the spot which she had selected. She clambered up with some difficulty, but presently she had gained the top. Pausing here a moment for breath, she found that just at this part of the Braywaith garden there was an open space where it would be safe to jump down, which she accordingly did. The question of getting back did not occur to her. Her one object was to reach her destination. As she made her way towards the house, the two figures who had followed her appeared upon the top of the wall. Here they seated themselves and waited. Braithwaite Hall looked dark and forbidding. There was one light at the back of the house, shining from a room that probably was the kitchen. There was another shining through the drawn curtains of some windows on the second story. With these exceptions, the house had the appearance of being quite deserted. But as she drew nearer, a sound broke upon the stillness. Someone was playing on a piano. Sydney went boldly to the front of the house. There was a small porch here, its roof supported by tall columns, and a short flight of steps led up to the front door. 
She felt for a doorbell, but there was none. An old knocker hung upon the door, but she had not the courage to rap with it. Instead, she turned the knob and found to her surprise that the door was not fastened. She opened it and walked in. By this time, Sydney was quite absorbed in the excitement of her adventure. Her one thought was to carry out the commands of the KQC without regard to anyone else. She was actually entering someone else's house as slyly as a burglar would have done, but it never occurred to her that it was wrong. On the contrary, she felt a thrill of elation. She had been chosen to carry out a most perilous enterprise, and she was determined to prove herself worthy. So when she found herself in a wide and lofty hall, dimly lighted by a small lamp that stood upon a table, and heard the wonderful music that came from above, her conscience did not trouble her, nor her courage waver. She walked along the hall and up the broad, old-fashioned staircase, following the sound until she reached the closed door, through which it undoubtedly came. Again, without giving herself time to think that it was wrong, she turned the handle of the door and looked in. The room was brightly lighted, but thick red curtains hung at all the windows and allowed but little of the light to escape into the night without. It was a wonderful room, and Sydney's breath came more quickly as she looked at it. Pictures hung upon the walls, and also great mirrors that extended from the floor to the ceiling. The furniture was of old mahogany, and there were cabinets and shelves filled with beautiful china. There was not a book to be seen. At one end of the long room, with her back to the door at which Sydney stood, sat a lady at the piano. She was playing with such marvelous skill that Sydney, who loved music, listened in wonder and delight. Suddenly, in the midst of the crashing of the chords, the player paused. The sudden silence was intense. She did not turn around, but she bent her head slightly to one side. That is not Eliza, she said. Who is it? Who is there? Without a word, Sydney closed the door and ran down the stairs. At the bottom, she paused and listened. Was the lady following her? No, it was quiet. But just then, a bell sounded at the back of the house and she heard a step approaching from the kitchen. She ran to the front door, and in another moment was out once more in the night. She hurried round the corner of the house and tried to find her way to that part of the garden by which she had entered. It was very dark, and she was so agitated by her anxiety to escape that she lost her bearings and wandered about the overgrown garden paths, not knowing which way to turn, but finally she reached the wall and made her way as best as she could through the bushes to the place where she had climbed over. But climbing back was another matter. There was no convenient stepping stones on the Braithwaite side, 
and after many unsuccessful efforts to get up, she decided that, unless she could discover a possible crossing between there and the road, it would be necessary for her to go out of the front gate and walk boldly along the road and in front of the Wickersham place. She hesitated to do this, for she had been explicitly commanded to scale the wall, but as that was clearly out of the question, and as time was going fast, she must return as best as she could or run the chance of being locked out for that night. Her absence would be discovered, and what would happen then she dared not think. Clearly she must get back, and as soon as possible. It was growing lighter now. Above the tree tops a silvery glow lighted upon the east. The moon was rising. She paused a moment to watch it. The glow deepened, and now a bright spot showed clearly, growing larger and larger until the great round moon was up and looking at her as she stood there watching. Then she bethought herself once more of the need for haste. It was easy now to find her way, but even by the moonlight she could discover no available means of climbing over the wall. She walked quickly to the road, and very soon she turned in at the school gate. She had not seen a group of people who were walking from the direction of the town and could see her very distinctly. They reached Wickersham Gate and entered it just as Sydney passed round the back of the house. She went in by the same door by which she had gone out. The two figures who followed her to the wall when she went were waiting for her here. She saw them now for the first time. Is that you, Anne? she exclaimed with a whisper. Yes, and Marion Shaw. We were chosen to watch you. You did splendidly, Sid, except not coming back the way you went. I couldn't, but I have had such an exciting time. Don't stop to tell us now, said Marion Shaw, though we are simply wild to hear about it. Get up to your room as quickly as possible. Be very careful. They crept into the house and closed, softly closed the door. As they walked through the corridor, the front door at the other end opened, and the party of teachers and pupils who had been to the entertainment at the town hall came in. Anne Talbot hastily opened the door of a convenient cloak closet under the stairs, which had sheltered girls before this, and drawing Sydney by the hand and followed by Marion, she pulled the door to until merely a crack remained. It was impossible to close it entirely. Here they waited, scarcely daring to breathe, if Miss Abby should chance to come to the closet. But she did not. Instead, she and her companions passed directly into the library. Anne, peering through the crack, watched them, and then when the coast was clear, she and Marion and Sydney hurried up the stairs and gained their rooms in safety. It had been a narrow escape, and although Miss Abby had distinctly seen a figure enter the place which looked suspiciously like one of the pupils, 
she was unable to discover who had been walking alone at that unseemly hour. End of chapter 6 Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.